All right. Good evening and welcome to episode 58 of the Racing Line podcast. Uh, Joey, it's good to be back with you, mate, uh, after a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, it's, good. it's good to have you back, mate. We've missed you. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Um, kind of needed to, to enter the bell um, with Harry away on HSC marking. So um, what a what a time really to jump forward and have a bit of a discussion. Um, we'll start very briefly by talking about the, the MotoGP race results, but then also the wider implications of the championship. So um, early this morning or late last night at the um, Ricardo Tuomo circuit in Valencia, we had uh, Lift Alex your Rins. mic closer to your mouth. Is that better? Yeah, heaps better. We had Alex Rins um, winning the um, Valencian Grand Prix, followed by, I can't even remember who came second. Was it? Um, Martin. Jorge Martin and then Brad Binder um, coming home in third. Uh, Suzuki's last race, Suzuki finishes their foray in MotoGP with back-to-back um Race win. Sorry, um, it was Brad Binder than Martin. Sorry, Binder than Martin. That's all right. So Suzuki finishes their their um, MotoGP, you know, um, four a four a with two wins from Alex Rin, kind of making us all wonder why they're leaving and and what could have been for Rin if he managed to stay on the bike. But that's neither here nor there. What a fantastic way for them to to leave the sport, um, you know, still showing that they have it. Um, and obviously there's a debate about the prudence of them leaving, um, but that is probably for another time. The race from the protagonist point of view, both Quateraro and Bagnaya, was a little bit uh, underwhelming. Bagnaya, you know, doing what he needed to do to win the championship, staying out of trouble, although he did make contact with Quateraro in the first few laps of the race, which um, which did damage his bike. Um, and then obviously Quateraro, Valiant as ever, trying to make things happen. But again, it was pretty obvious that he was kind of, um, you know, hamstrung, trying to win a championship with one hand behind his back. Um, so what we had was an 18-round championship. Halfway through the championship, the conversation was, is it already over? I'm pretty sure we called it twice. Joseph, I'm sure that you called it twice as well, that the championship was well and truly over. But what we had at the end of it was a championship that came down to the last race. And realistically, the odds-on favourite um, for most of the season coming out um, second. So what did you make of, of the championship, mate? I think realistically, if you think about it, there was real two distinct parts of this championship. There was the part where um, the Yamaha bike was was able to do well enough that it could consistently amass a lot of points while uh Caddy was working out the new bike and then there was a there was a distinct time where they sorted out that new bike and it has been a one hill landslide since then uh and realistically i can't like when we were taught when i said um the the this the championship was chalked up and i definitely said that that feels like a so long ago um I mean, Bagnaia got five poles this year. I think he got five or six wins this year. It has been an absolutely dominant season by him. Um, and for him to have, I think, DNFs four or five times as well and to still have pretty much wrapped up the championship 
by the second last round um, is is an is an amazing effort. So congratulations to him, number one. Congratulations to the to the you know whole team from Bologna, because you know you can say many championships are not fluke, but they can be fortuitous. You know you think about Suzuki's COVID year. Some 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 would say it was fortuitous. You could even like a, a Braun GP year. Some would call it somewhat fortuitous, but this this season has been totally orchestrated by the by the people at Ducati, and it's um, the scary thing is it's, it only looks like the beginning. Um, well, it's yeah, been definitely a, it's been a long time in the it's been the, a long time coming. Obviously, the last championship Ducati one was in with Casey Stoner in two thousand and nine, two thousand and seven. 2007. Um, so it's been a long time coming. Obviously, a couple of years ago, we saw Ducati take a real step forward with Davizioso, particularly when he was able to take take it to Marquez in those two championships. Might have been 17 and 18, um, you know, when he was really at the peak of his powers. But, you know, the issue was always that they hadn't figured out the handling of the bike through slower corners and it had all the power. Whereas now we've got a bike that has been iterated and iterated for the better part of a decade that is just as nimble, but also has the the straight line speed to be devastating. Um, So it's definitely been a long time coming. There's been a lot of investment. There's been a lot of development to get the bike where it is. And obviously they are in a position now where they should be reaping the rewards. One thought that I did have as it pertains to Yamaha is, um, you know, we've seen Yamaha in the past win championships early in the season. We've seen them lose championships late in the season. And by that, I mean, you know, many times we've seen, or in the recent past, we've seen Quattararo, for example, on the SRT bike start a season really strongly flame out at the end as the bike doesn't develop. We've seen uh, Maverick Vinales on a Yamaha start the season very strongly, get to Le Mans, and then the season starts to fall apart and Marquez is able to, you know, regain and reclaim the championship. And I think we saw the same thing again this year. It seems like when other teams early in the season are still figuring out their packages, figuring out the development, trying to figure out what is the best configuration for the development of their bikes. Yamaha is able to really put some points in the bank, but there is a there is a trend now that we've seen um, with the team really struggling with late season development. And even last year um, could have very easily been, you know, a, a championship result very similar to this um, had Bagnaia stayed on the bike in Mazzano. So what do you make of that? What is their, how do they rectify this moving forward? Because, you know, I've identified three times in the last six years that they've lost championships in that way and it could have been a fourth as well. So what do you make of that statement? Is it accurate? How does it get rectified? I think we've seen, I think with the Yamaha especially, there's a, I would I would call it a complacency that whenever they when like when they win they fail to um you know re, sort of like reinvent themselves mm. and uh, so last year they 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 won the they won the championship which was a you know a great feat for them but then we knew that the the um the package you brought in this year had to sort of been dialed in by preseason testing. You needed to know what you were going to, you know, what final package you're going to bring by the end of preseason testing. Um, and we saw 
K, not, uh, we saw teams like Ducati and KTM really throw a lot at the wall and see what stuck all through testing. And, and it became very apparent very early that Yamaha was just bringing the same package uh, with some slight, you know, slight tweaks here and there. The and crazy thing was we heard Quattararo say the day after his championship finished at the Valencia test that they needed to do more to keep him there. And this was the day after he'd won the championship with them. Well, he is he's he has decided to stay there, and uh, and from the mid so tomorrow is going to be an interesting day because tomorrow's there's actual um, testing happening in Valencia on the, all the new bikes, and I think tomorrow is going to be an interesting day to see if the pace that they seem to have found with the new engine at the um, mid season test is going to carry on to the you know the end of season test, but I think it was just them. Um, thinking that they were going to maximize the, um, you know, the potential of that bike for another year, mm. um, you know, which was long overdue. And th- that bike since halfway through the season ha- hasn't even looked close to probably the top three bikes on the grid. Like kudos to um, Quattararo for banking up so many points at the start of the year. But he, you know, he's he's still second in the championship by by the time the end of the season comes. But mm-hmm. I mean, you could make a very strong case that over the second half of the year, the Suzuki's have been better than that bike. The KTM's have been better. The Aprilia is probably not as much over it. They've probably dropped off a bit at the end of the year as well. Um, mm-hmm. But that's probably the same thing as. Um, they're probably still better though. Yamaha, they were max. Yeah, they were still better, but they were, they were running the same thing as last year. Um, cool. I've lost him. You need to bring a new bike just to you know reach another level. Mm. Um, it was it was the right call. And and the thing with Ducati, I don't want to blow smoke up their ass too much. Is they're always a team bringing the new developments into the sport. They're, you know, they're bringing the active suspension. They're bringing the wings. They're bringing the ride height. Now they've got these new, the, those, those rear tail, you know, winglets. Mm. Um, they're always innovating. Um, so I really think that they, they, they built this championship and they, they deserve it. And if I sound um, biased, go for it. Biased, I am biased because I think. Um, How long have you been, been waiting long... for one of these, Joe? For one of these. Yeah, for a championship, Ducati championship, it's been uh, probably since 2013, like mm. actively waiting, mm. um, passively waiting, probably since Stoner won it, mm. but actively waiting since about 2013. No, and you I've should bask. Should bask. I've seen, I've seen you win a few. I've seen John win a few. I saw Michael get one. So you know, it's it's it's, it's your my time, time in the sun. It's your time. Good on you. No, it's awesome. Um, so. One thing that also did cross my mind today, and I think it's probably a crossover point between MotoGP and Formula One, and that's like we're a motorsport podcast. We focus a lot about Formula One as well, so this might be a good crossover point. So we have an 18-race season this year in MotoGP that allowed, gave us enough racing for one person to get ahead and one person to catch up. And if we had any more races, the the scale of victory would have probably ballooned. Um, we're in a Formula One championship now where the championship is wrapped up. We've still got three or four races to go and the, the scale of victory will balloon because of the, the, the length of the championship. With Quattara, uh, 
Bagnaia was able to bin it a few times. Sorry, Bag- yeah, Bagnaia was able to bin it a few times, come back, win a bunch of races, and close the gap in the championship. And he deserves the championship that he's got. But you wouldn't want – I don't think I'd want the championship to be any longer than it actually is right now. I think it's at a sweet point where there's enough racing for you to kind of come back from early setbacks or some setbacks that you might have. Um, but it's also not long enough that it destroys the championship with the, you know, a fifth of the season to go. Should Formula One take anything from this? I mean, we're seeing a championship in Formula One that is getting bigger and bigger purely to make as much money as they can. But we're, in a, you know, we're in a championship now where, like, realistically, everybody's waiting for the season to end. There's nothing really to be gained. We're going to these amazing tracks. Um, particularly we're going to uh, Brazil next week. We're going to this amazing track. There's no real fight in the championship. Um, and it's, it's it's wasted on the fans to, to be going to such awesome locations and for it to be a dead rubber. Um, so obviously this is wishful thinking, but there should be learning that motorsport in general can take away from this. Yeah, the thing is, if, the thing with Formula One is that I don't know if it's the kind of sport that you know you can elicit massive changes to make it more interesting. Um, like the, my biggest comparison would be like something that NASCAR did a couple of years ago was they they've got like thirty six races in the year, so mm-hmm. to actually stop the dominant driver who was Jimmy Johnson at the time from you know these massive ballooning championships they implemented the chase system and love it or hate it. One thing that it does is it keeps the the championship alive until the last week. Mm. Um, that I don't think is possible in Formula One, you know, but just by the nature of the sport. Yeah. You don't have the diversity of potential winners that you're doing. Yeah. But I mean, like that was, a, that was a radical change in the sport that um, was needed. And then it also then fulfilled the duty, you know, for the, for the championship in general. Mm. So, I like if if Formula One is gonna do a season, you know, this long, I think they would have to implement something like changing the point structure to a comp to to stop the um sort of uh, ballooning of of points one way or the other in a um you know after you stack up a lot of wins like supercars. If you look think about it. From the amount of wins Kizzy got this year, he won about half the races. Mm. You would think that championship was wrapped up well before the last or the second last weekend, but because of the you know the whole how Allocation the system points, works, yeah, yeah um, you know it keeps it alive until the end. So there, there, there are mechanisms mechanisms that you can implement that can you know help the sport like if we're putting in sprint races there's no reason why the point system can't change either i mean the yeah. point system changed to accommodate more points for the midfield teams but then it's also probably accommodated a bigger disparity between points between the top teams as well um another question that i i think that's a great point another thing that i was thinking about and it, it was very much uh came about just by thinking about Ducati's history in, motor, in, in MotoGP over the last 10 years. So not so long ago, we saw a Ducati team that was well fun, like definitely well-funded, poorly managed, um, that had um, 
that was nowhere near competitive to the leading teams in MotoGP, that being Honda, Yamaha, um, and Yamaha at the time. Uh, it was being given the concessions um, that MotoGP puts in place to teams that are kind of underperforming and want to get to the level of the top teams. Um, and it had to go through the process of humbling itself, you know, receiving those concessions and then making its way back to the top of the grid. We've seen a similar trajectory with Aprilia um, over the last couple of years, and now it's getting more competitive. We've seen a similar trajectory with KTM. So there's these active processes. And Suzuki. And Suzuki. There's these active processes in MotoGP that help the teams that are coming into the sport um, that are investing in the sport to get to the top of the sport, whether it be, you know, through, you know, extra engine allocations, you know, whatever it might be, the allocations that are given to them to be uh, more competitive than, or to get to the same level of competition as those at the top. And then once they achieve that level of comp- competitiveness, then they lose those allocations. For a sport like Formula One, where we do have, even now with the cost cap, a very dominant hierarchy. Again, does the sport need to be more proactive in allowing the smaller teams to actually get the top? Because we've seen this year with the first year of the cost cap that the team that won the championship also happened to be in breach of the cost cap uh, and the regulations surrounding that. So whether it's working or not, and I know this is only the first year of this new system, I guess more, you know, we'll learn more about how much a team is able to develop and close that gap to the top next year once we've got kind of this wind tunnel testing, et cetera, um, restrictions. But, I mean, for a sport like Formula One that is dying for more diversity of winners, more diversity of teams that are, you know, on the podium, et cetera, the counterpart, you know, the other, you know, Grand Prix Championship, leading Grand Prix Championship of the world is doing so much to facilitate the racing and to provide, you know, this this awesome mishmash of competitive teams. Surely something can be taken from that. I think it comes down to the governing bodies taking a stand and making an active decision to encourage total competition in the sport. Um and how that happens, I mean, I'm I'm not paid enough money or I'm not intelligent enough to work out the ins and outs. We're not paid any money, mate. And this regardless, is, is somebody, somebody, somebody somewhere is paid lots of money to make these kinds of decisions. And, you know, you might not say it's in the spirit of the sport or, you know, I don't know how you, how you drum it up, but you're going to see next year in, in um, uh, MotoGP, uh, two teams line up on the grid that will have identical machinery and they'll be branded as different, you know, different uh, manufacturers. You're going to have a KTM and you're going to have a Gas Gas, which is smart by KTM because they own both companies. Mm. But what it's going to do is, number one, it's going to give what you would deem a smaller, you know, team the same capabilities to go out and win for, you know, a brand that you can go buy on Sunday um, from the showroom and that's all to do with the whole ethos now of MotoGP which is putting as many good bikes in the hands of you know great riders 
because for, for for the longest time you could be you could be a great writer and you would not be able to sh- showcase your your talent. You have like Elish Espargaro finally on a bike that he can push on, and he's racing. He's he's you know putting in efforts for race wins and pole positions. And for the longest time, he was stuck on, you know, a bike like a Ford Yamaha that was, you know, if he was getting a top top eight or a top nine was was a great result. You've got to think that that bloke, love him or hate him, he was the initial developer of the Suzuki. He was the initial developer of the Aprilia. So there's a few bikes out there on the grid that are indebted to his service. But again, coming back to this point, right? So um, obviously... Formula One is in a position where it's not really able to change until, like you said, it needs to adopt this total competition mentality, right? How That mentality probably it can't change until somebody within Formula One takes leadership of it, takes the decision-making out of the hands of the teams because everybody's acting in their self-interest and actually actively takes self-interest, takes, you know, acts in the self-interest of the sport. You know, these make selfish teams, decisions for the sport. The, these teams are making, you know, huge amounts of money by being involved in Formula One. Granted, they are investing a lot of money in the sport as well. But for it to be as competitive and possible, you can't have decisions being made in the interest of the teams. And we're seeing that with, uh, with you know, decisions like not being able to bring in a, another American team because it's going to take away prize money. You know, we're seeing it in, Supercars right now, even even though it's not Formula One, with them not wanting to give out another uh, license to a, a new team coming in, like Boost or um, allowing um, Blanchard Racing to have a second team. So we're seeing it in motorsport. And unless you've got a team that or, or an organisation that acts within the interest of the sport itself, um, these changes can't be made. And we're going to see championships like Formula One that should be the pinnacle of motorsport. That right now. I mean, I know that I have personally tapped out of the season. You know what I mean? I mean, would, we raced. It would be a very easy fix. Like you could implement something that like a team like Alpha Tauri mm. gets gets the Red Bull car of this year for the next year. Or they get the, you know, the intellectual, they can buy that or be oh, transferred hey. the intellectual property for the whole this year's car. Mm. And maybe not, they're not going to be as good as next year's Red Bull. But that would be something that would act in the best interest of the sport to get them closer to the front. Same as, you know, Williams or um, Aston Martin being um, customers of Mercedes. What if any team legally was able to purchase the IP of a previous car and they didn't have to go to the team? What if they... What if it was part of like the legal requirement that to be in Formula One at the season's end, all the IP and development, all that kind of stuff of the previous year no, of I don't uh, I don't agree with that. I don't think I think that's too open. It's open to purchase. Would, like you no, obviously you I purchase it, say, but you don't have to be given permission. I would say that the teams would have to still make an alliance or a, like if the team had a like a junior drivers program alliance or something like that, um, and there were customers. I think that would be in in the fair game of the sport. But you know, Joe, we've um, seen and, and, but, and the thing is, we've seen this happen as a counter argument. But we've actually seen this happen, like in the one case study we have, which was um, the Racing Point literally went from back marker to nearly best of the rest in one off season. 
we've and it also didn't even seen, get the total IP. It was just a also, copycat job. We've also seen Toro Rosso slash Alpha Tauri have an alliance with one of the leading teams in the championship for the better part of two decades now, and they've never finished in the top four of the championship. There, there is, there is mitigating factors as well that you know, like stupid little things that teams are forced to do, like the whole suspension geometry of the cars are the same, so they have to case them differently so they look like they're, you know, different designs. Like stuff like that makes no sense. No fan gives a shit what the suspension geometry of the car looks like. Mm. Or even notices it. So why we why why do we have to, you know, change change the external looks of it to make it seem like a more bespoke sport? You know what I mean? Mm. Well, that's like the thing. We're selling, I think that's the issue with Formula One. Right? We're selling engine drive. We're selling. We're sending. We're, we're now selling engine gearbox drivetrain, which is the whole heart of the car itself. That's about eighty percent of the important stuff of any race car in Formula One now. Why can't we have some like, similar bodies? Like no one's going to really notice that kind of stuff. Well, this is the thing. So Formula One, I think, is still very much, uh, what's the word, a victim to its own perception, a victim to its own prestige, and it very much tries to, I guess it's trying to... Um, Hold on to the Formula name in Formula yeah, One. Yeah, it's, it's trying to keep like the DNA of the sport, but what they don't realise is that the actual DNA of Formula One was built on secondhand cars that were bought from each other in garages over Britain after the second. Like there's obvious, it isn't as as prestigious, glamorous, glamorous as it as it is now. Do you know what I mean? But they're hold, trying to hold on to that. But to think about another case study, and it's going to be definitely a competition for Formula One moving forward, particularly with um, manufacturer interest. We saw something, and we've spoken about this before. But we've got a championship like the WEC that. 10 years ago made the decision that it wanted to challenge Formula One for, you know, this uh, idea of arms race development. So a manufacturer could come into the category and use the category as a prototype to develop its road car technology. Now we had these cars that were not as expensive as a Formula One car to develop, but still, you know, quite expensive to develop, test. And after 10 years time, you've got teams like Porsche, you've got teams like um, not really Toyota, but Audi, um, Peugeot, who didn't see the financial advantage of, of racing in that championship. After some very honest soul-searching, um, the people leading those that, that particular championship came to the realisation that it wasn't you know, the technology that was at the heart of the championship, but rather the racing. And they, you know, there's a whole... You know, you can look it up on YouTube, the, the changes that have taken place in the WEC, particularly from the LMP1 to this new LMH uh, formula. Um, a lot simpler. I think it's a quarter of the price of the old LM, LMP1 championship, and a lot of the parts can be purchased from, you know, uh, external manufacturers, whether it be engines. I think, I think an old LMP. LMP one budget for a season was 150 million, and I think this one's looking to be on the steep end, about 30 million. Mm. But with with LMDH racing cars, you can do it for about 11. Um, so there's like a it's a massive drop. 
a massive drop. And yet the racing, and yet we've got a championship now where you've got, by 2025, we could have as many as 10 manufacturers in Europe and North America with a whole plethora of privateer teams racing in the championship. Two championships. Yeah. So how does a championship like that realise what's important to get more teams in, uh, you know, more manufacturer involvement to, to build up the sport, but you've got a sport like Formula One where you have the biggest names, not of just of manufacturers right now, but also in uh, in marketing, in you know, energy drinks, all this kind of stuff. You've got the biggest, some of the biggest brands in the world all acting in their self-interest. And because of it, you know, we're not seeing the, you know, we're not seeing the, the level of success that the championship should well, I think they're seeing the level of, the level of, of success, to be honest. That's the difference. Um, it, it obviously d- depends how you measure success. Like, that's the whole metric. Um, in terms of growth of the sport, like, they've been looking to expand into the American market for so long. They've hit the golden child at the moment. They've got three races there next year. So for them, they're definitely feeling that success. The measuring stick will be when this honeymoon period sort of dissipates and the you know and everything sort of settles back to baseline what's left and if you're left of a stronger stronger sport again then kudos and well played but um like we're seeing Audi's on on the verge of getting involved will they commit long term um like th- these are the questions that after the honeymoon period settles like BMW, we've seen BMW come in and go Honda have come in and gone, you know, for many waves. Will Mercedes say forever? Like we don't, we don't know the answers to these questions. So you always have to have a contingency and why I always say you need to have a good sort of customer and, you know, privateer part of your racing established so that when the lean years come and they always come, you've got a portion of, the sport that isn't dictated by money is dictated by passion, you know, by people who are just willing to fork it out because this is their passion and this is where they want to, you know, pretty much burn their money. Um, and this is something that when I look at WEC and I see all the changes that they've made in terms of pricing of the cars, making it available for customer teams, you know, encouraging customer teams to run the main, you know, organizations of different cars and then choosing really strong teams from GT championships and bringing them up to an, like a uh, world endurance championship, um, you know, championship, but they're, they're picking strong teams who've been in it for the long time to then run these new programs but it's all, all really built on a sustainable base. There are also teams that have been uber successful in the in the in the smaller categories. Like for example, you've got teams like Proton Competition looking to run a Porsche. You've got teams like Jota looking to run Porsches. You've got teams like Iron Lynx looking to run Ferraris. AF Corsa running Ferrari. Oh, sorry, Lamborghinis. AF Corsa running. These are all teams that have been very much part of the establishment of WEC for the longest time, and we're seeing them now. You know taking the next step, which is, which is fantastic. I guess to finish off tonight, um, we should probably talk about the upcoming race in um, Brazil next weekend. Right. Um, amazing track steeped in history, 
always a fantastic turnout. I think the only real talking point of the Formula One Championship that's left for me personally is the battle between Ferrari and Mercedes. And we've seen in recent races that there's probably been, I think it's fair to say, uh, a tipping of the scales now with the level of competitiveness between the two cars. Um, does that continue in Bath in in Brazil? Is Ferrari in any way able to counteract this current this current trend with you know really no ability to develop the car any further? Um, and, and what do they have to do? Is it you know in the last couple of races I wouldn't say it's so much that they've been you know I mean, making mis- making mistakes. It's more that they just yeah don't have the level of performance that. Um, we're seeing out of Mercedes right now. I, would, I want to say, well, they've both got very different um, strengths and weaknesses. I feel like Mercedes' strength is just operational prowess and maximizing, you know, every result. And I feel like Ferrari's strength is the actual engineering of that car at most events. It seems to just be a faster car most of the time. Um, like they're two very different challenges that you have to grapple with. Like if, if the Ferrari, like if the track suits the Ferrari, no matter how well Mercedes execute, if Ferrari execute well, they're gonna they're gonna finish on top of them. Mm. Pardon me, but um, I suppose it's gonna be a matter of how much the Ferrari want it, how you know how eager are they to fight for that second place? I mean, realistically, it doesn't change much because they haven't won the championship. But I feel like for me, he will tell me a lot about the fight of Mercedes and also the readiness of Ferrari to, you know, just finish the season strong because regardless of how this season finishes, I, I guarantee whichever team finishes ahead of the other is going to carry a lot of goodwill and, and momentum into the next mm. season. Mm. Um, and I feel like it's in Ferrari's best interest to, you know, to, to stamp that down and the, and the ball is in their court to do that. Um, but, you know, Mercedes is coming quick and like real quick and um, they're scoring good points with both cars, which is something that Ferrari have consistently not done all year. That's been their Achilles heel. Mm. And I would say, realistically, if Mercedes finished second this season, I, after the start of the season they had, that is a massive feat. Yeah, like that is probably a bigger feat than Ferrari, than than Red Bull winning the championship. Like if you think about the scale of where they've come from from the start of the year and the time that they've you know, had to amass from behind those cars. That's a massive result. Another an, another talking point that seems to be firming up over the last fortnight has been the fact that Mick Schumacher might very well be off the grid next year. Um, it looks like a reality. I wouldn't say that he's had the most underwhelming season. He's definitely had a few crashes. It seems like the relationship between himself and particularly Gene, oh, Gene Haas and Gunther Diner has somewhat soured. What do you make of the development? Is it warranted? Will he find his way back on a Formula One grid now that he's going to be leaving it? I think he's definitely, he definitely has a chance to find his way back just through the name itself. Mm-hmm. I think he will have to, strategically put himself in the best teams possible and really jockey for, you know, the best seats possible. And they, when they become available, um, 
I don't think I don't feel sorry for him. So I still think that realistically, it's not. He has had a decent mm. chance, and he hasn't set hasn't the world that. on fire. Mm. Um, like realistically, I, you you could make an argument either way, and I could go, yeah, that's a fair point. So I'm not feeling like disappointed. Same sort of as why the same feeling I have for Danny Rick. It's like okay, this is a way that you know the cookie is crumbled. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to move on? Uh, I, I, if I was Mick, I would just probably try and fo- like try and find your, you know, just fall in love with the sport again. Maybe take a year and do some racing that you're, that really interests you and excites you, rather than um, like you know just sit as a test drive. I don't like it when they just sit as a test drive for a year. You can test drive and still do something else, and I think it says a lot about. You know the character of a driver when you when you go and do something else in that year because I think it shows that you just want you know you to just race. want to race. Albert and DTM like, maybe like that. Go DTM, go WEC. We talk about WEC. Go do try and get into a WEC team. There's gonna be a lot of seats up for grabs. You know, go if you want to do a limited IndyCar championship and there was a seat available, do that. You know, there's there's lots. Of, if you put that put the word out that you're looking to do something. People are going to come. Like a hundred percent, people are going to come for for, for Schumacher name. Um, so yeah, just if you haven't got a seat, try and position yourself as best as possible, and may have a contingency plan that if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Mm. I mean, realistically, how cool would it be if he was involved in the Ferrari work team next year? Which I don't think would happen, but something like that I think would be amazing. Mm. Yeah, very think, cool. Like, well, also with you know the news that um, that you know Daniel Ricardo um, was approached to run in IndyCar um, next year, and he kind of said, "No, nah, he's scared of ovals." I mean, while I understand, I don't wouldn't say that I necessarily completely understand the hesitancy of these drivers to race in America. We've obviously seen. A fair share of drivers from DTM from all over the world now going into IndyCar to race. Um, you know, I don't think that Ricardo being a test driver next year gets him back into into the sport. So I, I, I agree with your sentiment that for these drivers that want to, well, not want to, but find their way out of the sport, they should be actively trying to to get back in. And I think there's no better way to do it than if to stay they, relevant if they want to keep to. racing. Well, if they exactly if they want to, but I don't know. Like, like Danny Rick and 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 Mick Schumacher are at, to, are at totally different stages of their racing careers. Like that's a, that's another, another. Yeah, they thing. are, but they also if they they also both want to get back into the into the sport, and the only way that you can stay relevant is to continue to put yourself in the shop window, and I think that's consistent whether you have been racing for ten years or whether you've been racing for two years. So if you want to remain that consistent, that that kind of relevant, you've got to be. You got to be showing off your exploits, I think. I don't think that there is a way back into the sport unless you're a world champion or you're very strongly aligned with what, like Red Bull or Mercedes in their in their junior programs. Mm. Um, other than that, I don't think there is a really a way back for. There's not really really a way back for anyone, but. Um, Without those connections, I don't think there really is a way back. So I probably would be looking for a contingency anyway. Do you have any hot, just to finish, do you have any hot takes 
predictions from this week? Anything yet? That- I just wanted to. I just wanted to mention how much I enjoyed the hype up NASCAR got last week from that Ross Chastain mm. making it into the final mm. um, final four. I mean, I've not given a, a thought to NASCAR probably over the last eighteen months. Months. Um, probably through no fault of its own rather than I'm just too busy. Mm. Um, but I thought, <clears throat> number one, that's such a, it was such a cool moment looking as an outsider to, sort of to see, uh, you know, a, a motorsport get a massive pickup over a weekend for something that was so outrageous but cool at the same time. Mm. Um, and I feel like every every motorsport needs a moment like that every once in a while just to let, um, to, to be able to show sort of lay people, people who are not who are not in the sport, something cool that they haven't seen before. I think that's that really happened last so week. So for any anyone who hasn't seen it, we had a driver that was fighting to get into the top four in the championship. With in, in the second last race, he needed to get into fifth position to, have, to accumulate enough points to get into the top four. And why that's relevant is because is because only the top four drivers in the points going into the last race have a chance to fight for the NASCAR Sprint Cup Championship. And um, on the last lap, I think Chastain needed four or five positions. And rather than racing around the oval, which was quite a short, I think it was a half a mile, half a mile track, rather than kind of just following the status quo and trying to make an impossible amount of moves on the last lap, he essentially just put it into top gear um, and drove it around the wall at top speed and man- and managed to, to get in like that. So if you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube. It's quite amazing. Got did get some mixed reviews. It did seem like a a video game kind of maneuver. Just look up but, Ross, Ross Chastain, Martinsville, Martinsville 2022. Mm, I've it watched or, it probably 100 times. Love it or hate it, um, you know, I guess winning's winning, right? Yeah, um, I just so, I just thought it was a cool moment um, for motorsport fans to see something totally different. Mm, um, mm. And I got reaction, and I, I was asking people about it and what they thought of it, and and no one told me that they didn't think it was cool. Mm. Well, there's definitely some negative rhetoric regarding it around. Um, I think you know, anyone in involved the in the sport community. at a high yeah. level just like in any sport, would be somewhat against it. Probably the same thing as Hamilton versus um, Verstappen last lap of the championship mm-hmm. last year. Same kind of idea. When you're inside the sport, it's very inside baseball. You probably don't like it as much. Mm-hmm. But from the outside looking in, I think you can you can drum up a lot of drum up a lot of you know um, positive vibes and just like a good uh, look for the sport in terms of something that's totally different. And I thought, and that, and that was my thought of the week. I just think, without over-engineering it, every sport needs to, you know, have a chance to create moments like that. I think we'll leave it there. Let's do it. And we'll be back next week with uh, a recap from the um, Brazilian Grand Prix. So, Joe, it's good to shoot it with you again, mate. Uh, it's been a minute. Um, everyone all the fans again thank you for your continued support please continue to like please continue to share please continue to spread the word 
um, this podcast is only as big, is only as successful as the people that listen. So we uh, we need your help. Um, thank you so much for your time again. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great night, and uh, we'll give you something else next week. Thank you. Thanks, mate.